Alan Johnson won gold at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta in the 110-meter hurdles. But he'll tell you that his biggest accomplishment on the track was not in Atlanta. It was actually a year earlier at the World Championships in Sweden. I looked at his celebration after the 1995 World Championship and his gold medal in Atlanta, and they couldn't be more contrasting. One suggests incredulity, and the other one, relief. I had my theories as to why he would fall on the ground in Atlanta. After speaking to him, I learned how much deeper the reaction went. We could have talked about Allen's World Championship in 95, 97, 2001, 2003, and that he dominated the sport for a while. He's one of the fastest human beings to ever run track. We could have talked about him becoming an All-American at the University of North Carolina. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about how he got there, specifically his high school career, where he was not a state champion until his senior year, and where, in fact, track was not his first love. And speaking of UNC, I found out that Allen was 24 hours away from signing a scholarship offer to North Carolina State University. That was a surprise. But we'll begin the Allen Johnson story talking about his first love, football and the day that his mom and coach told him that he would have to stop playing. think about the different eras in track and field and you, you know you have the Carl Lewis, Jackie John Kersey era mm -hmm. where they got a lot of media attention. Right. You know football and basketball were premier sports but track and field wasn't as far below them as they are now. And then you had my era where football, basketball, baseball, hockey, NASCAR just completely took over the, the media waves and there was no real internet. I feel like track and field didn't do a good job growing in the media as the other sports did. I think that a lot of people from my era got somewhat lost in that. And then you take the, the era after I retired, internet, social media. Right. So now you have this completely different media outlet that has taken over. I mean, you can watch a meet on the internet. You know, it can be live streamed. So a meet is not dependent on a network to get the product in front of viewers. I think that has a lot, lot to do with it. I did a little bit of research online and there was not a lot for me in terms of what is expected from athletes today and what is out there for even athletes who are not even close to the level that you attained. And um, there wasn't a lot. And you talked about the difference in the perception of you once 96 happened, once you got the gold medal and it was Alan Johnson, the yeah. gold medalist. Yeah. But I want to start talking about because this is my perception, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed that you liked to be a football player more than you were a track guy. Like early on, it was football that seemed to be what you liked. It's the sport of kings, better than diamond rings. That's why we're here to sing football. Sunday in the snow, referees whistle blows, weekend warriors toe to toe. Football. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, growing up in the Washington D.C. area, 
Washington Redskins in the 80s. You know, I like Joe Theismann, Art Monk, Gary Clark. Not a lot of people know this other guy, Charlie Brown, Alvin Garrett, Daryl Green. Like, I'm Was he a two-way player at one point? Who? Daryl Green. Did he play DB and no, split just sometimes? He, sometimes just I don't remember. He, okay. he, he uh, returned some punts, maybe even a couple kickoffs, but I'll never forget. He was a Redskins versus Dallas Cowboys Monday Night Football, I think. He was a rookie, so I must have been in seventh grade. Tony Dorsett breaks out. And one of the fastest guys in the league, he breaks out, and it's like, oh, up that six. And out of nowhere, Daryl Green just runs him down. Diagonally across the field, yep. Tony Dorsett is going down the left sidelines. Yes. Daryl Green comes from the middle of the pitch. Yes. And I believe everybody had stopped. Every other DB, every other defensive player, like, conceded. Yeah. And your boy came out of nowhere as a rookie says, I'm here. For me, as a you know, 12, 13-year-old kid, seeing a guy from my team you know, run Tony Dorsett down, I'm like, the football gods have blessed us with this guy, and he's totally awesome. Did you want to be a DB? Well, I wanted to be a wide receiver. Yeah. But looking at the stats, it says 5'10", 165 for you. Yeah. Now, looking at wide receivers today, that's just small. Yeah, small. But at that time, like a quarterback at that time, when I, first, I came to this country in 85 and started mm -hmm. watching football, I fell in love with football right away. Football taught me American geography with the, um, the conferences. Okay. The Southeast, okay, the okay. Pack, that's how I okay. learned American geography. And a quarterback then was like six foot to six foot two, two hundred pounds. Okay. Now that's yeah, nothing. Yeah. You gotta be like six five. So as a five ten fully grown man, how tall were you, freshman, sophomore, junior in high school when you were playing football? My freshman year in high school, I was five three, a hundred pounds. My sophomore year, I was five eight, one hundred forty pounds. My junior year. I was probably about 5'9", probably 145, and then my senior year I was about 5'10", 150 pounds. Started? First year I played um, basically like rec league okay. when I was in ninth grade. 10th grade, I didn't play at all, I broke my ankle. In 11th grade, I was on the varsity team, but I didn't play. I was on the bench. And then my senior year, I didn't play. Right, so we're going to talk about that because I read that the track coach came to you and said, Alan, you ain't playing football. You're going to concentrate on track. Coach well, Digby or something like that. Well, what I found out later was he went to my mother and told my mother. Oh, he got mom involved. Don't let me play. So I, I said, I'm going to come here and ask you, what was that moment like? Because there are a bunch of moments in your yeah. career, Olympic gold medal, all that stuff. But I want to know, what is that moment when it's obvious you love football and either mom or the coach comes to you and says, Alan, for your benefit. For your future, you ain't playing football your senior year. It's oh, better it, to it play was, track. It was extremely, extremely disappointing. Extremely, extremely, extremely. I can't emphasize enough how disappointing it was for me. I wanted to wanted to play my senior year, have fun with it, and then go on to track. How long did it take you to get over it? Mad at mom, mad at coach, took you a couple of weeks, and then you're like, all right, this is what it is. Honestly? I'm probably still not up. So mom's fighting out this now? You're still pissed? No, she knows. And coach, is it Coach Digby? Yeah. He's still alive? Oh, yeah, yeah. He knows yeah, too? Young, yeah. Has he Has he ever said, I'm sorry? Or they all look at it, well, you ended up as another big gold medalist, so Basically, we all made yeah. the right decision. Exactly, yeah. We all made the yeah. right decision. Yeah. You know, parents are the same no matter time, no place. They don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes. So to you other kids all across the land, need to argue parents just don't understand I got contacts my senior year after my freshman year in college mm -hmm. 
I was messing around with some of the football players during the summer. They were throwing passes, and, and as a matter of fact, the guy who was the quarterback in my high school name was Todd Burnett. Todd Burnett had a cannon strapped to his shoulder. Started at UNC? Yeah, he started a little bit of freshman year, a little bit of sophomore year. He had a cannon, and then, of course, Mark May, who he was with Tampa. I think he was a backup at the time. He had an even stronger arm, and I'm out there just catching passes from them, and I'm saying this is so much easier than it was just two years ago. Right. I kind of made the connection that wearing glasses out there versus if I would have had contacts out there, my hand would have been much better. And again, the, the adults in your sphere mm-hmm. seem to think that you were at least reading, at least, at least from the track coach, that you're injury prone and football contributed to that. So they saw, all right, let's keep him injury free and maybe we can get something out of you maybe going on to college in the yeah. track. I was injury prone, but it was soft tissue injury. I didn't have any, no broken bones or anything like that. So all my injuries came from track. And all the years playing football, I never got hurt. Gotcha. Who was the wide receiver that you looked up to? Was it somebody like the ones we mentioned in the Redskins? Yeah. Um, what is the name? Again, it's a forgotten athlete, and I think in the realm of just athlete, not just track, but just athletic accomplishment. Maybe you can t- inform these folks, like Ronaldo Nehemiah. Was that an example? And explain to the folks in the podcast who that is. Ronaldo's probably the greatest hurdler ever 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 he was a phenom out of high school he was a phenom at the university of maryland matter of fact he still holds the collegiate record today mm-hmm. he set the collegiate record back in 1979 as a sophomore in college what's the time he ran 13 flat okay. which was the world record at the time and to this day the closest person to that collegiate record is, is grant holloway who just ran 13 15 this year as a sophomore so you fast forward 39 years, right. you still have a guy who's, by track standards, not even close to the collegiate record, and he's considered the next coming. 39 years ago, you got this little kid from New Jersey named Ronaldo Nehemiah running 13 flat. He was a sophomore at the University of Maryland. That's crazy. So he did that. There wasn't a lot of money in track, so he went to play football, played for the 49ers for, I think it's three or four years. Mm-hmm. Got a Super Bowl ring. He went to football 81. Or 82. Came like 82 back to, to 85, he was with the Niners. Okay. Yeah. And came back to track in 86 and then ran track until basically 93. Yeah, 85, and, the, the, the Niners got a guy named Jerry Rice. Maybe yes. you saw the, yes. the writing on the yes. wall. <laughs> I mean, he's still he's still involved with track. Was he an example because he combined his passions for football and track? He wasn't an example for football, but for track, yes. I didn't even know who he was. I had a friend of mine that I grew up with, and he talked about... Yeah, there's this guy named Skeets Nehemiah. He's so good, he can he can knock a quarter off a hurdle and not touch it the whole race. And you know, he and my friend, his name was David Composi. He showed me Ronaldo on the cover of Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. when he made the cover. And he's like, "This is the guy I'm talking about." Okay, whatever, hey, man. Let's go outside and play. But that was my that was my first introduction to who Ronaldo was. So was track a passion? equal to football when you were, say, junior high, no. early high school? So no. you just went to the track and everybody no, thought you had this ability you just didn't? No, I, did, I didn't go out to the track team until I was in ninth grade. I'd never run track So, so what were you that. doing, like, middle school in terms of sports, athletics? Play football. Okay. That's it. And then went outside to play. And when we went outside to play, we played football. Track was nothing that I thought a whole lot about. Mm-hmm. In ninth grade, my brother decided he wanted to run track. So I was like, well, I guess I'll do it too. 
This is five three one ten or one one thirty. Yeah, this, this is the end of ninth grade, so I'm probably about five, six, or seven at this time. You were not Alan Johnson, the, the world champion at that point. What were the times like? What were you sort of a mediocre on the track team, just building your way up? I was always a good jumper, like, even as a kid. I showed most of my promise in the long jump. Tried to high jump. I jumped like five feet. Long jump, I jumped 19 feet as a freshman. That was the first time I'd ever actually done it. No technique, no nothing? Well, I don't know how I did it, but just from watching some of the meets that were on TV, and I was, mm-hmm. I'd seen the hitch kick before, Okay. I basically came out without really being taught. Because I remember my high school coach, we were we were in the gym jumping off a springboard, and I, I came down and hitch kick, and then he's like, where'd you learn that? And explain it, what is that? Is that sort of the walking when you're in the yeah, air? Okay. exactly. Okay. So he kind of, he stopped practicing and I said, everybody watch this. And he said, do that again. And I'm like, uh-oh. So I just went down and jumped and did the same thing. So when did that come into vogue? Because black and white film, I remember Jesse, he just jumped, 36, and then I think Beeman did the same thing, just kind of yeah. jumped and kind of went through I'm the air. not exactly sure when. So maybe 70. So Beeman is 60. Yeah. 68 Sometime in the 70s, everybody yeah. just started doing that. Yeah, probably so. That's I mean, and at the time, Carl Lewis was the king of track and field, so it was, that's what Carl Lewis does, and that's how you're supposed to do it. That's what I should do. And I'm hoping so. to get to some things, cause, like specialization. I think I've, I've heard you talk about it. You know, it used to be somebody did the one, two, like Jesse, one, yeah. two, the four by one, yeah. and the long jump. Yeah. So somebody like a, a Usain Bolt, six, seven, and I watched the young Cuban kid, Echeverria almost jump out of the pit at 19. And he looks like he's like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he looks like a tall guy. But you don't see sprinters doing what Lewis and Owens did, like also doing the long jump. Is that just off limits to people right now? Just not in vogue? I just I think it's probably not in vogue for the men. You see it with the women. You see girls doing hurdles and sprints and jumps. But with the guys, you don't see it as much anymore. And um, you know, with, with with males in track and field, a lot of times some of the best athletes, they're playing football. Or maybe some of our best high jumpers are playing basketball. Where on the women's side, I don't think basketball is really taking very many track athletes. Volleyball maybe, some of the high jumpers are maybe playing volleyball. But for the most part, if you're a really athletic female, you know, maybe you play soccer. But track and field is just easy to get into. I don't know why more athletes don't do more events. By the time I finished high school, I did high jump, long jump, hurdles, and now you see if somebody's a good high jumper, then you don't see them really doing anything else. You're starting to see it a little bit more now, but a few years ago, you know, high jumper is a high jump. Pole vault is a pole vaulter. A hurdler is a hurdler. And then if you sprint, you sprint. I think that maybe it's because kids don't really go outside to play anymore. They're not developing some of those motor skills in a setting where it's not instructional, where they have to use their own mind and kind of with their friends figure things out. Right. You know, when, when I was growing up, like learning to throw a football, first time I throw it, it friends right on, man, what is that? Peer that's pressure not, gets you better. <laughs> that's not how you throw it, this is how you do it. No, man, what's wrong? I just told you, man, this is how you do it. And you just keep doing it and doing it, figuring it out, where now everything is in an instructional setting. We comment a lot uh, as coaches in soccer that all of the world, we just get the ball and let's do this. 
like you said, you're figuring things out on your own, as opposed to other American sports, and I think this is the disconnect with soccer and the youth level in this country. Basketball, the coach can call a play, you run it. Mm-hmm. Football, the coach can call a play, you run it. Right. Volleyball, there's a set, you run it. In soccer, it is just you, and you've just got to figure it out in concert with the people around you. So I'm reading you. If you lean one way, oh, that's probably what he might do. Right. So let me do this. There's not a set play. But for track, you have to have instruction, right? Well, chances are you're not going to get a bunch of kids out there saying, hey, let's, we can, let's right. see we can jump the farthest. Hey, let's set this thing up and right. we can jump the highest. You know, kids race. But there needs to be some instruction, and I think at the youth level sometimes that's why you see athletes performing better, like in Europe. Probably as a whole, they're getting better instruction at an earlier age. They have more organized clubs where we don't really have a club system. We use the high schools and colleges. That's our feeder to the Olympic level. So in in Northern Virginia, D.C. area, you coming up, and you said you did long jump. Mm -hmm. You did some, obviously, running events, high jump. You decathlete, more or less? No. No? In Virginia, you can do a maximum of three running events and as many field events as you want. So they maxed your butt out. Your, yeah. Your but, 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 see, year. but it, had, it, had I grown up in North Carolina, I wouldn't have been able to do all the things that I did in Virginia because in North Carolina, you can only do four events, period. Is that good or bad? I think both. I think what they wanted to do was create a situation where a coach doesn't have an athlete trying to do 10 events. I think four events is limiting. I mean, to me, it causes people to specialize more. We're going to get to the part of uh, interview where I have to talk about Carolina. I mean, you're at NC State. I'm at NC State. We're wearing red. (laughs) I don't want to, but I'm going to have to talk about them Tar Heels because that's where you went. That's where you became an All-American. You're in high school in Northern Virginia, and obviously you're showing promise. But you were never a state champion until 89 until your right. senior year in an individual event. Right. But the team won state titles or? Yeah, my junior year. And you're racking up all the points for them, more or less. I got a good number of points. Modest, you're racking yeah. up all the points for them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, honestly, it was, it was really, really a team effort because I want to say my junior year, I didn't hurdle. I think I got second in the long jump or fourth in the high jump, something like that. So I actually scored more points my senior year. It came down to everybody. We had a pole vaulter. Everybody was contributing. Every, yeah, everybody. He's had still to. being modest, y'all. He he, he scored a ball. No, no, points. seriously. I mean, it was it was <laughs> modest to a fault. This is why you're not getting the endorsements <laughs> now, because you you got to do what these guys do today. You say it's all about me, me, yeah. me, me, me. So North Carolina comes knocking. Who else knocked? You said Ronaldo Nehemiah ended up in Maryland. Right. So Maryland was right next door. Did they come knocking? Yeah, Mar- University of Maryland, University of Virginia, NC State, University of North Carolina, William and Mary, George Mason. North Carolina happened kind of by mistake. So you see, that makes sense, because I knew you would never pass over at NC State, so, so, Mr. Johnson. So, so, so my junior year at the state meet, the sprint coach at NC State came up to me and started talking to me, and he handed me a brochure. Probably after about five minutes of talking to me, he asked me what year I was, and I was like, oh, I'm a junior. And he was like, well, hold on to this stuff, and um, I'll get in touch with you next year. <laughs> I was like, cool. And I looked through it. I was like, shoot, man, I'm, I'm going to NC State. We were that close. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to NC State. We were that close. For whatever reason, I could never get a visit schedule here at NC State. Okay. But, but NC State and USC were still my top two. 
She never came on an official visit here? No, never came on an official visit. Damn. I was supposed to come one weekend. It didn't work out. Then we came down here for a track meet. It got rained out and we left. They were both offering me the same amount. And then North Carolina up their offer. They were both offering me 50%. North Carolina up their offer to 75%. Signing period was in April. This is like March. And the coach from North Carolina one night calls me and says, I need to know tonight whether you want to come or not. Because if you don't, we're going to give this money to somebody else. A little pressure. Yeah. So I was like, can I think about it? He's like, hi, I'm sorry. I, I need to know now because we got a guy, we got another guy who wants the money. And we want you, but if you can't tell me, I got to give it to him. Sneaky bastards of Chapel Hill. How I, dare they? So I, I told, I said, I'll never forget. I told him, hold on a minute. I put the phone down and I went in the bathroom and looked in the mirror and was like, are you going to North Carolina? <laughs> I was like, oh man. So then I came back and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm coming. No talk to mom, dad. They were comfortable choice. with you yeah, yeah, making all choice. those decisions. Yeah, okay. It was my choice. And so I told him I'm coming. He's like, all right, we're going to send the papers to you and you got to sign them and send them back on such and such a date, blah, blah, blah. All right, fine. The next night, NC State called me and offered me more. So I told NC State, I was like, okay, cool, yeah, I'm coming. And I said, well, wait, let me let me go ask my mother. Because I told North Carolina yesterday that I'm coming. So I went and talked to my mother. I said, hey, yeah, mommy. I called my mother mommy. I said, hey, mommy, uh, NC State just called. They're going to offer me more than what North Carolina is going to offer me. So she told me, she was like, Alan, you have to honor your word. You told North Carolina yesterday. 24 hours we could have been. World champion Alan Johnson representing North Carolina State University. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. So I'm, yeah, because well, I was wondering, with all the places you've been, you've coached at USC and South Carolina, Air Force, Kentucky. I wonder why NC State. Now I know there's a there's a history, there's a connection to the university. Now making that decision, it's a tricky process. And hearing you say that it was, it wasn't a full scholarship offer right. from UNC, but they did up it. And again, looking at your career in high school, and even when you got to the place over there in Chapel Hill, that it wasn't initial success. Right. Like, it wasn't you as a freshman dominating high school. And it doesn't sound like you were on the AAU track circuit just... No, not at all. Kill, killing. Was that I, I a never, thing at that I, point? Or just high school? I, it was a thing. I just didn't know about it. I mean, I knew about junior national and making U.S. teams. I knew about stuff like that. I remember my sophomore year I was hurt. My junior year I was hurt. My senior year I qualified for junior nationals but I chose not to go because I was like well I'm getting ready to go to college I want to enjoy my summer and not worry about track and then pick all that up when I get there in the fall I didn't have a lot of track experience coming out of high school you know I did indoor and outdoor track but I didn't do any summer stuff so when I got to college it was the first time I really got some real voluminous training mm -hmm. so when I got hurt my freshman year in college Soft uh, tissue? Just hand, yeah, just hamstring. I was second in the ACC as a freshman. What event? Long jump. Then my junior year in college, I started hurdling. The hurdling kind of took off. 
seemed like long jump was your event early on when you got to college and got the injury. I wanted to find out when did the 110 hurdling start becoming the focus. But before that, I want to just take a, a little aside to talk about, and again, in the little bit of video I've seen on you, you're very reserved, just like you're presenting yourself now. And it seems, I mean, that's, that seems to be sort of who you are, but we're, we don't end up like that. So I'm thinking, even the way you describe how your mom told you, Alan, you made a commitment to this place. Right. You know, there's certain moral fortitude there, a certain center that, that I would assume has to come from mom and dad. So talk about that a little bit. Because in 20 years of coaching, and you've been a coach as well, you get parents all up and down the spectrum. And they didn't seem to be those parents who were like, Alan, you gotta, you gotta, we got They didn't seem to be that. It's just, you do your thing, let you figure it out. And for me, in the end, those are the things that separate the also rams from champions because once you get to a certain level I don't, I don't care who you are nobody can push you to be a champion yeah, yeah. and specifically try because it's just you yeah. it's just you out there so what sort of relationship did you have with your folks and what was that grounding like father were weren't together okay. so my father was in California and that was my mother in Northern Virginia so I mean my mother worked for AT&T she went to business school she got her MBA from Howard in 1973 she was among the first generation of women let alone black women who were professional women going into the workforce and I think she just came from a different era I mean, she, she's the baby boom era and with me I don't think at that time college wasn't this uh, overbearing cost. Now you're looking at twenty thousand dollars, twenty-five thousand oh, dollars. Keep going, keep going, man. At least, right? For public schools in state, if you want to go out of state, you're talking forty, forty-five thousand dollars. Then you talk talking private, you're talking sixty, eighty thousand dollars to go to college, and basically nobody has that kind of money. So I think just because of the times that. It was. That's probably why it was like that. Where I think maybe now, if you have 75% versus 95%, hey, we're going to take this 95% because it's it's going to cost less money. You know, and as far as growing up with my mother, she would always tell me figure things out or she would always tell me, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. And then when you try and try again, it doesn't work. It's like, well, keep trying. If you want it bad enough, you'll figure it out. through high school, success didn't come until the end of high school. And at UNC, it didn't come until junior and senior year. Yeah. So that ethic to keep going was there and then finally rewarded. 
But in terms of just, again, in, in the way you present yourself is very even keeled. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah. That I think that you were one of the last superstars in track before the social media boom. You say yeah. Bolt has to do the lightning bolt. Or it, it kills me when they're doing the... Uh, the close-ups mm -hmm. as they're coming across the line. I don't need to know your hand signals, dude. Just smile, yeah. get in the blocks, and then start running. It's I don't the, need to know what you're. It's different now. I mean, you. It's everybody. Does it bother you? No, it doesn't bother me just because I think it's economic. The more likes you get, the more whatever you get, then, you know, for an athlete especially. Could you uh, have survived in this me, me, me? Because it has to be me, me, me. I have to compete for I, not only TV and cable, but I have to compete with all the other people that have Instagram. I have to get somebody to look at my Instagram site, my Facebook yeah. page, and my Twitter. Could you? I think I could have. I think okay. it just would have been in a different way. It, it, it probably would have been more subdued, more, uh, more subtle. I think. I mean, I, w I would have never been the type to, you know, be really flamboyant. But I think I'd probably have some some cool pictures. You know, maybe some some cool poses or something or just I don't know. I, I would have figured out something. Cause I mean, you know, I'm human. I wanna I wanna get likes. I want people to follow me. And but I think it also goes back to my extended family because I spent a lot of time I spent summers at my grandparents house with my grandmother grandfather aunts and uncles and you know even with my grandfather you know he wasn't he didn't brag about himself and he talked he talked to all of us about you know you don't you don't brag on yourself if you're that good then somebody else will brag for you well, the other part of that is, as a black man in this country, you bring attention to yourself, you bring in danger to yourself yeah. in his era. Yeah. So I think that's part of it, too. For me, I was always shy, also. I mean, that's probably a lot of reason why I'm subdued but even in my being shy growing up there's a part of me that always wanted to be that guy that could save the day you know be the guy that if it's football catch the winning touchdown with with no time on right. the clock and if it was basketballs you know the you always play do the three, three two one yeah. one down by two and it's whoosh, and we went by one right you know I always wanted to be that that guy and so when you got to UNC, it was sort of mirrored that high school experience. Started off freshman, sophomore year, not quite because of injuries and just learning. And then junior year, you switched to the 110. Now, was that an event that you tried in high school? Yeah, I was a hurdler. I was actually state champion my senior year in the 55-meter hurdles, indoors. But I had always hurdled. I just didn't do it a whole lot. I was more focused on the jumps. And then even when I got to college, and I kind of dabbled in the hurdles a little bit. Because my sophomore year, so I won the long jump outdoors. Got second at ACC's in the 400-meter hurdles. So then my junior year, since I had placed in both the 110 hurdles and 400-meter hurdles, I was going to hurdle more. But going into my junior year, in my mind, I was preparing myself for the 400-meter hurdles more so than the, than the 110 hurdles. Because my junior year was, the spring was going to be 1992. The thing in my mind was, 
I'm going to qualify for the Olympic trials in the 400 meter hurdles. I think the qualifying was 50.25. The guy that I studied the most was a guy named Sam Matete. Okay. He was the world champion. He was gone to Auburn, ran 47.10. And then the guy that beat me at ACC, Derek Atkins, he had made the world championship team the year before. He beat the snot out of me. But I was like, man, I've run against this guy. Okay, he's better than me, but let me try to get to 50.25 seconds, qualify for the Olympic trials, and then from there, just take it round by round and just compete. And if I get lucky, maybe I make the final, and if I make the final, then hey, I'm just gonna go all out and see what happens. But during the indoor season, I qualified for nationals. Kind of tell people I qualified by mistake because going into the year, I never thought that I would qualify. And then I went to nationals and I won. So Surprise I won. to you? In the moment, no. If you would have told me at the beginning of that year, hey, you're going to be the national champion. You're going to, you're going to win NCAAs and set the meet record in the 55-meter hurdles. I would have said, you're, you're crazy. What are you talking about? My, my best time in the 55-meter hurdles is 7-7. And those guys are running seven ones. You know, maybe I can get the nationals. I believe that. But when? Nah. Did you feel it? That race, or leading up to that final, when you were the 55 meter champion, did you recognize yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, they were running 7 1, I'm at 7 7. The very first meet of the year, I ran a 7 3, 7 38. Then we got to our conference meet, ACC's, and I got second place. So I ran 7 38, then I ran a couple times that were slower. And then we had a, this random meet at Chapel Hill. It was on a Friday. I wasn't supposed to run because we were going up to Fairfax to run in this big meet to run four by four. So I wasn't supposed to run. And then it was like two days before my coach says, hey, I'm gonna enter you in the meet to do the hurdles. And I'm like, I thought I wasn't running. No, you're just gonna run the hurdles. I just need you to run like just one round. I was like, okay. So I was procrastinating on doing a paper. I'm, I'm in study hall, finishing up a paper before the meet, finish the paper running on campus, that was before email. I had to slide it under the door, <laughs> run down to the track, to the indoor track. I warm up, run the first round, the preliminaries. Don't run a great race, and I'm like, well, I ran bad, but that's all I have to do today anyway. I'm getting ready for Sunday to go up to Fairfax mm -hmm. and run on this four by four. So I go to my coach, Charles Foster, and I'm like, so I don't have to run the final, right? And he laughed at me. He goes, after that garbage? No, you gotta run the final. And I'm like, so the final comes, I'm in the blocks, and there was this guy named Charles Johnson. He was running unattached. You know, he'd been out of school. He had on his fresh Reebok gear, and he would come there and run meets, and he would always win. So I'll never forget the, the starter goes set, and I was like, I really don't feel like doing this. The gun went off, and I just kind of took a step out of the blocks, and I looked up, and I was in the front, and I was like, What's going on? So I just kept running. Mm. And then I ran a time and qualified for the Nationals <laughs> and beat him. And, it, and everybody was like, man, that was an awesome race, good race. After that, went to the conference meet, got second place, ran 7-1. From that point, I was just competing against my competitors and trying to beat them. So I ran 7.07. I didn't even know what the meet record was. I didn't know the meet record was 7.08. I assumed. I was like, well, Ronaldo Nehemiah ran at college. And I knew he had run 689 in the 55-meter mm -hmm. So I was like, so 
that must be the producer, right? That must be the meat record or something. And, you know, they announce I won new meat record, 7.07, .07, breaks the record shared by, shared by Roger Kingdom and this guy named Tony Lee from Washington. And I was like, I ran faster than Roger Kingdom at, at this meet? And Roger Kingdom had won the 84 Olympics mm -hmm. and the 88 Olympics. So, you know, they asked me, what does that mean? I said, well, if I ran faster than what he ran at this meet, then maybe one day I can run as fast or faster than him. It was at that point that I was like, if Roger ran 708 and I ran 707, then he ended up running 1292. Shit, maybe I can run 1292 then. <laughs> North Carolina. So you, you finished there, All-American, yes. national champion. One national title, indoors my junior year, outdoors my junior year I was third, and then indoors and outdoors my senior year I was second. I was a senior in 93, and at that time the, the top guys were Greg Foster, Jack Pierce, Tony Deeds, American, the veterans. Internationally it was Colin Jackson, Mark McCoy who was Olympic champion and a guy by the name of Tony Jarrett from Great Britain. Now you said that the best moment of your track career, the most memorable, was not winning gold in Atlanta in 96, was becoming world champion in Sweden in 95. Right. And I can see why. And I actually went back and looked at the tape of both. In 95, you cross, I don't think you believe it. You look up at the, the board. Yeah. You look up at the jumbotron or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of almost do a double take like, wait a second, that's me? Kind of like what you described when you're talking about going against Roger Kingdom and looking at that time going, well, if he did seven this and I did seven that, then I can project and do that. And you are running against Roger in 95. Yeah. He finishes third, I believe. Yep. You're running against him. What is that moment like? It, it was a progression. So... Let's go back to my senior year. So mm -hmm. my senior year, because I was the NCAA champion my junior year, mm -hmm. I got an opportunity to run in the Millrose Games in New York. And then there was a meet in Fairfax, the Mobile One Invitational. And they were on a Friday and a Sunday. Millrose was Friday, Fairfax meet was Sunday. I go to Millrose, and it's a wood track, and something happened with my spikes. My spikes came out of my shoe, all this, everything, that anything that could have went wrong went wrong. Ran the meet, ran terrible. So then go to Fairfax two days later, and I'm running against Greg Foster. I want to say Roger was in the race too. The gun goes off, and I'm running against them. I mean, they, they beat me, but I thought they were going to just absolutely kill me. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of what I would call in touch, and I saw the time that they ran, and I'm saying, they weren't that far in front of me. I can run that fast. And they didn't run particularly fast, but it was still a a faster time and I was like I can do that and then 
fast forward to the U.S. national mm-hmm. championships that I qualified for in, in 1993, and I ended up getting fifth place. I made it out of the first round, made it out of the second round, and I'm in the final, and you know I'm starting to feel just like, you know what, when that gun goes off, I'm going to run up like a bat out of hell. So, I, you know, I could get out with them, and the fact that I could get out with these guys and be there with them for, you know, two or three hurdles, I was like, okay. If I keep working at this thing, I can make three hurdles go to seven hurdles, seven hurdles go to ten, ten hurdles at the finish line. So since I got fifth place at the U.S. Championships in 1993, I made the USA versus Great Britain team. Colin Jackson runs for Great Britain. And Colin Jackson had run 13-10 at that time. So we're in the race, the gun goes off. And again, like it could happen my junior year when I was writing the paper, I wasn't supposed Mm -hmm. to run that race. The gun goes off, and I'm running next to this guy. And during the race, I'm like, how am I running next to this guy? This guy's super fat. He should have won the Olympics last year, but had a bad race, and I'm running next to him. And then all of a sudden, bam! I hit this hurdle. I fall back in the race, but then I'm still running. I get over the last hurdle. I stumbled again, cross the finish line. And it was a one-dated time, but it was 13.34, and I got second. And that was the moment that I knew that I could run with anybody in the world. On that particular day, Colin, he ran 13.01. And I'll never forget, I came back and told my coach, I was like, Coach Fry, I can run 13 flat. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. I said, no, I'm serious. I was running with this dude for like six or seven hurdles. I hit the hurdle and I stumbled. And then I stumbled again across the finish line and ran 13.34. I was like, I'm telling you, I can run 13 flat. I know it. And then, had a couple meets in Europe that summer, ran 13-4, 13-6, and then 1994, you know, I'm kind of still trying to find that race mm-hmm. from the summer before, and I think I ended that year running 13-25 or something, being ranked sixth in the world, and then it was the next year in 95. All during that time, I knew I belonged. It was a matter of me finding it. From 1993, well, actually from 1992, I had this long-range plan. So 1992, I was like, I want to win the gold medal in 96. And I was like, okay, so I got to run this time in 93, 94. I got to run this time, 95, this time, and bam. So I know by 93, I was like, I got to run 13, 19 in 1994. I got to run 13, 09 in 1995. And I got to run under 13 seconds in 1996 to reach my goal of getting a gold medal. And so, and in that, it was 1995, my goal is to get the silver medal at World Championships, because I figured Colin Jackson would win. And then 96, when I run under 13 seconds, that's when I'll surpass him. Was Jackson in the 95 race? At Worlds? Yeah. No, he was having a dispute with that's his, what, yeah, that's what I thought. With his federation. So 1994, I finished the year, I ran 1325. And I'm like, shit, I fell short of my goal, but 1319, 1325, it's close enough mm-hmm. that I'm still, I'm not off track. Can I ask, what is the difference between 1319 and 1325? Is it a lean? It's a thing about track that drives. I'm like, I don't know how you guys can live with. The diff- Jerry Seinfeld has a joke. The difference between the greatest guy in the world yeah. and absolutely nobody. Nobody gives a damn about who finishes fourth. And we're going to get to that because yeah. that happened That happened in Sydney. Nobody cares about the guy who finished fourth. It is literally 
hundreds of yeah. a. How do you live with that? Is it just a, a fingernail? Is, a what is, is a, it? A lane is about two hundredths of a second. You're talking about probably three or four feet. How do you live with that? How do you live with that? Hey, that's how it is. That's the world we live in. That's that's our reality. So that's what it is. I was always able to tell. Like if I beat somebody by two hundredths of a second, I know I beat him. When I lost by two hundredths of a second, you still kind of held out hope, but in your heart of hearts, you knew you, you lost. Especially if they're in the lane next to you. Right. I was a little off, but I, it, it's close enough that you say, hey, well, you, you can overcome that the next year. So I train, 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 uh, fall 94. Then I go indoors and 95. First couple races were, you know, they were whatever. And then I go to the Milrose Games. And I remind you, so 94, I'm ranked number six in the world. Milrose Games, I get there, and everyone in the race, except for maybe, I think, Mark Career, I beat the year before. But they were bigger names. I want to say Greg Foster was in the race and some other people. So they gave me lane six. Which is not ideal. No. Because basically what they do, they give the best people in the middle. the middle lanes. And so I'm saying to myself, how did I get lane six? My time was faster than everybody else in this race from last year, except for Mark. How did I get lane six? So I took it as a, as a disrespect. So I won that race, ran a personal best, ran a 7.54, which is, it's a cool time, but it's not like super fast. We get on a plane that night, fly to Germany. So two days later, I had to run in Stuttgart, and Colin Jackson, Tony Jarrett was in the race. Can't remember who else was in the race, but I remember. Any time before when I ran against Colin, I would psych myself up and I'd say, uh, Today I'm gonna shock the world. I'm gonna shock the world today. I'm a bad man. I shook up the world. I'm gonna set this right now. I'm gonna shock the world. Gun goes off, and I get to the third hurdle. I'm like, where is everybody? And the minute I said, probably as soon as in my mind, as soon as everybody got out, I saw Colin Jackson and Tony Jarrett's lead leg coming up. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, there they are. And I ran, and we all died at the finish line. All three of us ran the exact same time, but Colin Jackson got first, I got second, and Tony Jarrett got third. I was like, uh-oh, I'm fast now. You know, and I had PR again, so I started getting some media attention because it was like, uh, you know, Colin Jackson hadn't lost a race in over a year and stuff. And it's like, well, who's this? Who's this young kid from the U.S.? I was a couple weeks shy of my 24th birthday, so basically, say I was 24. So then we go to Madrid right after that, and then we race. Colin Jackson was there. We race, and we both run 7:42, but I beat him. So now I beat the world record holder, world champion at his event. What's your name? Where, where, where are you from? You know, all this stuff. And I'm like, it's 
not my first ring. Right, 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 right. It's not my first. You got an Alan John up from the U.S. Just like it says in the right. in the program. I'm a Jackson boy. Fairfax. <laughs> Come on, I'm U.S. national so, champion. Yeah. So then we had another meet. I'll never forget. We were in, in Karlsruhe, Germany. In the preliminaries, you know, I ran something like 7:45, and then Colin Jackson goes and runs 7:39, fastest time in the world. And then he doesn't show up for the final. Is that a sort of a mental game that somebody tries it, to pull on you? I took it as, okay, you got lucky and beat me the last time. We ran the same time. You, you edged me out, whatever. Okay, I just dropped the 739. Right. Deal with that. Right. I'm out of here. I don't need to run against you again. Right. So I come to the final and run 738. Hello. And I'm like, oh, man, I... I must be the man. <laughs> <laughs> so this is when you start to feel it. So I see the yeah. body language yeah. chain here. I'm seeing yeah. this. Yeah, but so. what I notice in interviews is, and I, know, and I see it now, all that is very contained. Very contained. But I'm seeing it here. I'm seeing it. So you're running 738. This is indoor. This is indoor 94. 95. 95. Sweden is when in 95? Sweden is, is August. How, and how many times did you cross paths with Colin? Outdoor. After that, outdoors, yeah. he was running, but he wasn't running a lot. Like I said, he was having a dispute with his federation. I remember him running. I don't really remember running against him much, if at all, before the time of the World Championships. So I went into a World Championships. Then it's outdoor season. I'm running. I qualified for the team. And Colin Jackson is not at the World Championships. So I go into World Championships. I think I had the fastest time in the world. I'm not... Sure. I know I'd run 13-16. They're talking about me because I'm defending indoor world champion. But it's really more about Tony Jarrett, who got the silver medal two years before, and that Colin Jackson is not there. So go to Worlds. I win world championships. So coming out of world championships, basically the, the talk was in the media that I won world championships because Colin Jackson wasn't there. Again, I take that as, as disrespect. Championships, there's a meet, uh, meet in Zurich, biggest meet of the year. So, Colin Jackson is going to be at the meet, Mark Creer is going to be at the meet, and of course, I'm going to be at the meet. Let's do this now, let's settle this once and for all. So, now it, so it was like this is going to prove to everybody who the real world champion is. So, for you, was that event your world championships? Or did the World no. Championship still, it was still what no, it was? No, to me, to me, the World Championships was World Championships because I ran 13 flat to win. So for me, it was like, it's the fastest time in the world. So had you guys been there, I would have beaten you anyway. But, you know, in the media, it was, mm -hmm. well, what would have happened if they would have been there? You know, well, Alan Johnson won because these two guys weren't there. What would they have done? Okay, we're going, we're going to Zurich. 
and we're gonna see what the real deal is. <laughs> so I go to Zurich, gun goes off. The brother, get it ready. That's the bank. Get it ready, you mother. We're running. We all cross the finish line. And guess what happens? I'm third. Oh. For me, it was like, okay, I just proved, I just proved them, you know, right. the, the them, right. I just proved them right, that they believe that I'm not rightfully the world champion. One of these two guys should have won. Now, maybe if I would have got second place, maybe there could have been an argument. But oh, when everybody geez. was there, I got third. So then that year, track and field news, they ranked me number two behind uh, Mark Creer. Mm -hmm. You know, he had beaten me more times than I would beaten him, but my argument to myself was, well, I won World Indoor Championships, I won World Outdoor Championships at the fastest time in the world. You know, me beating him at these individual meets, that wasn't the goal. The goal was World Championships. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, well, no, I didn't get a chance to beat him at World Championships because he wasn't there. So since he wasn't there, I didn't get a win on them so it didn't count in our head-to-head right. -head competition. So, you know, we go into the next year and it's... 1996 Olympic, yeah, Olympic year. And, you know, we're running all year and stuff and Mark beat me a couple times. I beat him. I think I beat Colin once. He beat me once. But I knew that when we got to that Olympic final and everybody was there, I'm getting ready to put all this stuff to rest right now. Last year I was a world champion and I was the best hurler in the world. And I'm going to back it up and I'm going to show you so there's no doubt this year. So, the difference in the reaction in 95 coming across the line was like, yeah, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've arrived. Right, right. To 96, it was more of a moment of reflection as far as just my my whole life and when I was probably in sixth grade I had a friend of mine he's from Greece named Constantine you know he was like hey let's race so we raced one time I beat him and he was like you're gonna go to the Olympics one day and I'm like no I'm not going to the Olympics so it's just that moment of all the years running track all the times thinking about hey I want to go to the Olympics hey I want to try to win the gold medal in 96 and it's like Across that line, it's like, it's like, are you serious? Like this, you know, when you're in the moment, of course you want to win, but then it happens, and it's like, how did little skinny kid from Northern Virginia get all the way to the Olympic Games and win? So it was just kind of that kind of, kind of reflection. Like for me, it was almost crossing that line, went into a, a parallel universe or something, where you know. You, Olympic yeah, I mean, they said it, and again, nothing, American sports, American sports writers, and American public, I mean, any public all over the world, the one thing they like is a champion, because once you're a champion, you're that, and they cannot, unless you do something egregious, yeah. 
you're never not going to be that. They're always going to, every time you're introduced, it's Alan Johnson, yeah. Olympic gold medalist. And so those two moments I keyed on this morning watching the videos, and it was, it was this kind of, and you, this is what I want to find out. I didn't want to ask you questions about, I hate these questions. How did you feel once? Yeah. As, as an athlete, I'm sorry, but I can never orate to you exactly what it felt like at, at that moment, because that moment took 20 years. Yeah. And there's a personal story, a journey that you will never know, no matter how many articles you write, no matter how much time I tell you, you will never, ever know it. So I'm like, I know former athletes who are in those positions to ask those questions, they have to kind of ask those questions because that's what the regular person wants to know. But as an athlete, and I was never at the level that you were, but even at my level, you will never know. You will never know what it took for my team to get to the NCAA tournament. You will never know all the shit that we had to deal with personally yeah. in the locker. You will never, yeah. ever know what that moment felt like. So juxtaposing those two moments, it was this sort of shock in 95, looking at you, looking back at the time, almost incredulously like, I did that? Yeah. And I can see, and this is what I wanted to know. What was the buildup to that? And for me, when you fall on your back after crossing, you're on the grass in Atlanta, and you fall on your back, and you just, there's this 20 seconds of, I get it, just that's just self-reflection, and it's exactly what you just yeah. described. How the hell did this skinny kid from, from Northern Virginia make it there? And also, I get it now, my thought was when I looked at it this morning was relief having to do with pressure. Like you were the favorite going into it, but knowing the story now, yeah. it wasn't. It was just more, this is for all y'all. Y'all yeah. didn't think I could, and one reaction could have been just pointing to everybody and the camera's like, shut up, I did this, but yeah. it was just, again, was you. And the UIC is just, yeah, that meant something to me. Yeah. That just meant and said something to me. And anybody who's listening, go and look at that. It's, 20, it's about 15, 20 seconds of you on your back, glasses still on. I don't know if you're crying or if you're, you must have been, I'm guessing. Well, no, I was, I was, I was just thinking. I mean, okay. and, I, and I even thought about, so my grandfather died in December of 89. Okay. So April of 89, they did this big article on me in the Washington Post. And I remember showing it to him. I'll never forget, he looked at me, he goes, so does this mean you're going to the Olympics? And I'm, I'm thinking, Granddad, this is, this is just high school. I don't know if I'm ever going to the Olympics. So, you know, th that was also part of it. It was like, if he could have, you know, my grandmother was there, other family, especially with being in, in the U.S. But it's like, if he could have been there to see that, because seven years before, you know, he's asking me, does, does this mean you're going to the Olympics? No matter where you go in your life, at some point you're going to need somebody to stand by you. When, when we reach the, the pinnacle, it is such a personal justification for the time, the money, everything, and that nobody will ever really understand. What does 1292 that time mean to you? Then it was. Well, according to Aries Marriott, that doesn't mean nothing. Yeah, I know. 
<laughs> he told me that too. Oh, isn't well, that cold? The very first time I met Aries Merritt. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who's and not, Aries Merritt is the current world record holder. World record holder in the one ten Olympic champion for Olympic two thousand twelve in the in the one ten hurdles. First time I met him, he goes, "Hey, I just wanted to meet you. My name is Aries Merritt, and I want to let you know I'm going to break all your records." At first, I'm like, "Who is this guy?" And I was like, "You know what? That's kind of cool." that that's what your goal is and I was like I hope you do it you know and at the time I'm thinking 18 19 year old punk kid yeah, yeah. he's maybe he does he's probably not and then you look up however many years later and he runs 1280 breaks the world right in your event like for the regular folks who watch track every mm-hmm. now and again that time now Carl Lewis was what in the hundred was nine eight four and then it got down to nine seven nine nine seven six but yeah is it like Carl Lewis, 9.84 to 9.76, or is it 9.76 to 9.58 in your event? If you understand my question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say the 12, the 12.92 was probably more like the 9.86 that Carl Lewis ran back in 1991. And the 12.80 is probably like 9.75 or 9.74. To put it in perspective, you know, I talked about Ronaldo Nehemiah earlier who ran 13 flat while he was in college. Well, when he was 22 years old, he ran 1293 in 1981, which was the world record. And basically from 1981 until Aries Merritt ran 1280, nobody had run too much faster than that. So Mm -hmm. world record went from 1293 to Roger Kingdom at 1292 to Colin Jackson at 1291 to Lu Shang at 1288 to Daron Robles at 1287. And that's from 1981 to 2008. And then all of a sudden, in 2012, Aries married. He'd run 1292, 1293, 1295, and then he just dropped a bomb in Brussels that year and went 1280. That's down there. I always thought I could run about 1278. You know, if you put it in terms of people who watch track and, and think of it in 100 meter terms, I consider that 1280 kind of like a 97 low where like the 958 that Bolt ran would probably be like somebody running 1269. You don't even think about 1260 something, but you can think about 1280. You can see that. And that's what I wanted to ask. What is the time then? Like like superhuman time. Like 958 is just ridiculous. What is a superhuman time for 110? Like what is the thing that nobody thinks about now, but maybe if there's like the Usain Bolt of the 110, they get it. 12.60 something. If somebody ran 12.6, that would be the race that everybody's going to see. I I need to see this race. I need to see how this happened because it, it doesn't make sense. So what's it going to take? There's, there's, there's three steps between each hurdle. Mm-hmm. So we're talking two and a half. Two steps. Somebody who's like, legs are so long. It's too far to take two steps and it's too close to take four. So you have to take... I mean, well, maybe that's the thing. Maybe somebody will take two steps, but I doubt it because mm-hmm. it's just too it's just too far. It's gonna have to be, I guess, somebody who can just turn over crazy fast. And there was a hundred meter race where I think Gabe was there, Bolt was there. Might have been the race where he ran nine five eight, where there were like three other guys that ran sub nine seven five. Uh, was there a one ten race where everybody was like under? Not yet. Not yet. No. Okay. Not yet. I know towards the end of my career, there were two races that I can think of where more than one person ran under 13 seconds. That was the first time that it ever, ever, ever happened. I know that IAAF has this stat book out 
I have the world record for third place, still, if I'm not mistaken. I ran 1301 in a race and got uh, third place. So 96 is the goal. You stretch that dominance for another five, six years. And then you continue racing, which was unheard of. You race until you're about on the other side of 35. And you said that you wanted to not leave until there was sort of every ounce of track yeah. in you out. Were you successful in that? Yes. And yeah. were, were the last couple of years, I'm not saying it was a victory lap or a victory tour, but were you enjoying the moments more? I had expectations, but they were reduced expectations. I was still going to go as hard as I could. I still wanted to win, but I knew that, I knew that there were people that were better than me. So I was going to have to try to find a way to hopefully they make more mistakes than me and I, and I win. Where there was a time in my career where I, where I felt like I was the best. And if everybody ran their best race, then I was going to win. End of my career, if everybody ran their best race, I was going to be third, fourth, fifth. Like going into 2008, my goal was to get the bronze medal at the Olympic Games. I knew I couldn't beat the guy from China, and I knew I couldn't beat Robles from Cuba. And I had raced Robles that indoor season. I was like, this guy's gonna win the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's nobody that can beat him. So I was like, okay, those are the top two guys. I knew Terrence Trammell was better than me. And then David Oliver was kind of coming up. Cause I remember thinking to myself, I was like, okay, Terrence is gonna make the team. David Oliver is gonna make the team. I gotta make sure that I don't let three people beat me. But I got injured and wasn't able to compete anyway. But going into it, that was kind of my mindset. I was like, if I can be third at the trials, I'll get to the Olympic final. And that Olympic final, I just gotta find a way to beat Terrence or David to get this bronze medal. And I felt like if I if I could have gotten a bronze medal in 08, it would have been as significant, maybe even more significant than me winning the gold medal in Atlanta. It's like Carl Lewis getting that medal in the long jump in Atlanta, kind of like yeah. that feel. Yeah. There are times when there are times when things don't lay the way they're supposed to lay. But regardless, you're supposed to hold your head up high and walk tall. Walk tall. You talked about 2008, falling short of getting that, getting that bronze, and that was the goal, because that was a realistic goal. I think it's in Sydney in 2000. Yeah, you had a chance. Yeah, you had a chance in in an interview. It seemed to indicate that you were saying almost like you kind of gave up at the last second, almost like you saw like there was no something where you would figure the mentality of a track guy is my lane. I'm going to just go balls to the wall until the finish line, and that didn't seem to be what happened technically for you in the race. So speak about that a little bit, and then in your coaching capacity now, knowing that, and that being part of your history, how do you relay that to kids? Is it more of an impetus in saying, finish it? Because I, Alan Johnson, world championship gold medalist, I was in Sydney in 2000, and I didn't. Yeah. You know, I went into the race obviously to win. I felt like I could win. So I'd gotten hurt before. Mm-hmm. I had strained my hamstring, so I'd been out for like six weeks. 
and that was my first race back was the Olympic Games. But, you know, we're running the race and I'm running and Garcia pulled away and I was like, I can get the silver medal. And then Terrence Trammell went past me and I'm like, bronze medal. But then for me, it was, it was kind of like all or nothing and bronze wasn't good enough for me. So it was kind of one of those, oh, this is, this is jacked up. I got the bronze medal as I'm coming, as I'm backing off, coming across the line. And I'll, I'll never forget looking up at the board. I saw first place, second place. And then for some reason, my eyes jumped to fifth place and I saw Colin Jackson. And I kept going down. I was like, well, I was like, what place did I get? And I looked again and I saw first with Garcia, second with Terrence, third was Mark. And the Johnson and Jackson kind of ran together. Mm -hmm. I kept missing my name and I kept seeing Jackson. <laughs> I'm saying, wait a minute, I was third. And I look again and it shows me it's fourth. I'm like, how the, how the hell did I get fourth place? I was third coming across the line. Mark was on the outside and he, he dipped. And he ran hundredth of a second faster than me. Yeah, and he got third and I got fourth. A hundredth, I guess there's no harsher lesson to learn yeah. than a hundredth yeah. of a second. Yeah. Again, I don't understand how track guys or no. speed skaters, how y'all live with that. Once you do it enough and you start to kind of see how it is and you run against people so many times, you have a pretty good idea how it's going to mm -hmm. play out. You know, and, that, and that's part of racing too, the psychological aspect. So even for me in that moment, it was like, I got third. So in my disappointment, even kind of not continuing to go as hard as I can, I'm like, I got this freaking bronze medal. This is a waste of my time. Oops. You Check this out. You don't have bronze. You got four. You have nothing. Eight years <laughs> later, you killed for that bronze. Yeah, exactly. I Man, you describe that of, of racing, and then almost like this movie slow motion effect, like super slow, where you can look right and look left, and you mentioned a couple of times, oh shit, I'm ahead. Or oh, shit, here's guy, here's his front yeah. leg coming through. How much of that is you trying to check it out, or is it just natural that you can see you you you're always paying attention to the periphery, especially if you're in lane like four or five. I always always paid attention to what was going on around me. That's like in '04 in the Olympic trials final, I clipped a hurdle really bad. I was in the front and I dropped all the way back, but because I had raced all those guys before, I knew I could run faster than all of them. I was like, okay. You don't have to win this race. Don't be fourth. So I just kind of looked around. Terrence was winning. Dwayne Ross was second place. And I was like, okay, I can stay in front of the rest of these guys. So for me, I was always, always aware of where I was in the race, what I needed to do, who my competition was, what I felt like their strengths were, their weaknesses. What do you try to impart now? And you're now coaching here. You've coached at South Carolina, Air Force, University of Kentucky. Now, I'm going to say back home right. to NC State, <laughs> back home to the Wolfpack. And you've got two, I guess, kids unlike you who got their successes very young. Right. Cravant? Yeah, Cravant, Charleston. Charleston, he was a 100-meter champion as a freshman. And Gabriel Cunningham, and that's where I, I saw you working with them last summer in preparation for meeting in Peru. So what are you teaching that, besides the technique, what are you imparting to them about all those things, about the psychology of it. What does it take to be a champion, basically?
A lot of them going to suffer tonight. Cause this session is getting hotter. And this your dancer is under fire. A lot of people going to feel good tonight. So a lot of some boy are gonna end up a fight. But remember to praise that champion. Every time. And he will guide you <laughs> throughout this session. It's under fire. I think one of the biggest things I try to teach them is to be a student of their event. You know, I, I tell all the athletes, I said, listen, you're you're here in college and this sport, it's another major. And you have to do some studying for it. You got all your classes, you got your major for school, or if you're double majoring, you got two majors for school. And this sport is another major that you have to do some studying for. You know, you spend all the hours out here on the track, but you gotta go back and look at some video. And then on top of that, understanding what your strengths or weaknesses are to yourself mm -hmm. and being honest about that and then the technical aspects of it you gotta focus on the technique because the more technically you are the more efficient you are and and then lastly understanding your opponent and being able to look at your opponent and understand how you're going to beat them you know sometimes i tell them i say sometimes the key to these things or everybody can beat somebody that they're better than. Mm -hmm. Can you beat somebody that's better than you? And how do you do that? So a lot of some boy are gonna end up a fight time. But remember to praise the champion And he will guide you throughout this session It's under fire Whoa. And how are they coming along? I know there are other athletes, but for yeah. now, we're just on this yeah, yeah. podcast mentioning Gabrielle and Cravant. They're coming along. I mean, it, it's, it's a process. I mean, they're still trying to process all of it. It's one of the things, again, as a youth coach, I see that in kids, and I, I don't know how to get it across, maybe because they're too young, that you're not showing up here to kick a ball around three times a week. I'm teaching a soccer class, and it's just as important because yeah. you're paying money to do this. It's just as important as the math class, the science yeah. class, you're part of a chess club, whatever it is that you like. Yeah. You're coming here and I'm, you're studying. It just, it kills me where, okay, I say do, do X. Ten minutes later, we're going to come back to us. What did you say? I can't have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I understand it's children. Yeah. So when you get to this level, it's college, it's ACC. It may not be SEC track. It's not Texas. Right. It's not, you know, West Coast, whatever. But it's still a high enough level. Can you be flippant? and be a success? Can you be somebody who doesn't care about the details and just, not do you see it? Maybe not here. Have you seen it in your journey? Oh, I see it. I've seen some of it everywhere that I've been. Not every athlete wants it. When I worked at Air Force Academy, the head coach there, Ralph Lindemann, he used to always talk about affiliation needs and achievement needs. You're going to have people on the team that have affiliation needs. They're affiliated with NC State University. They get the Adidas shoes. They get the Adidas gear and that fulfills that need for them, they're good. Other people have achievement needs. They want to be good. They satisfy that need by being successful. If that means getting fifth place at the conference, if that means making the final and they've achieved something, then that's what, that's what feeds them. That's what mm -hmm. keeps them going. The people that have the affiliation needs, 
you try to get them to achieve, but it's the ones, in my opinion, the ones who have the achievement needs are the ones that are the most successful. Those are the ones that end up getting the most of my time. Are you happy with what's going on at U.S. track right now? Yeah. I think we're going to be looking good for 2020 Olympic Games. Anybody we got to keep an eye on besides uh, Cravant and, and Gabrielle? I would say Dylan, Shannon Patterson, Quayshawn Cunningham. I mean, those are the ones that just come to my mind right away. We're going to see the other ones that, that progress. And what do you want to tell, like my friend of mine, he's uh, used to run, his name is Duarte Diaz, he used to run for the Puerto Rican national team, and he had me on the track my senior year, he got me in the best shape of my life. And I told him I was about to interview you, or I, or I, I think I posted a picture mm-hmm. that I took with you last year, and he, he like lost his mind. And for a year, I've been asking him, come on, are there any questions that you want me to ask Alan Johnson? He was like losing his shit that I'm talking to you here. And I also know that folks in this country may not appreciate track athletes like they do in Europe mm-hmm. or they do all over the world. So my podcast is small for if somebody happens to be listening who's an Alan Johnson fan, what do you want them to know about, you know, about me? Yeah, what you're doing now and where you are right now. Um, is, it, is Alan Johnson happy? Is he doing all right? Is he? Oh, yeah, you know yeah, I'm, yeah I'm happy coaching, just trying to trying to help young people reach their dreams, having fun. I appreciate you taking the time to share these stories. This is what I wanted. I wanted seriously to find out what got to that moment in Atlanta when you were on your back. And I think I... I hope my Ubuntu uh, People's Podcast audience has gotten a taste of what that is. It's... We don't know athletes. We venerate and celebrate athletes, but we really never know what it takes to get there. And I think I got a better sense now. And hope for my buddy Darte. Mm-hmm. I hope you got a better sense of a personal hero of yours. And uh, Coach Johnson, thank you very much for taking the time to do this, man. Thank, thank you. you. I again want to thank Mr. Alan Johnson for giving me a few hours of his time. When the recorder turned off, we actually spent a few more minutes talking about coaching and our observations, him with his track athletes and me with my youth soccer players. And I would love to, hint, hint, Coach Johnson, continue that conversation at a later date for my Ubuntu audience. Until then, continue to listen, click, like, subscribe, comment. We're on iTunes and the Apple Podcasts. I started in Ubuntu People's Podcast YouTube page, so if it's easier to listen that way, do so. Thank you for tuning in. I know you'll be back, but for now, we are out. <laughs>